That's kind of intense. <laughs> good morning. It is really good uh, to be with you guys. I haven't been here at Five, at five Forks in a, a few months, a year more. I don't know. It's like COVID went into warp time, and I don't have any idea what year it is anymore. Uh, but it really is a thrill to be with you guys. It's a thrill to work with the teaching team at First Baptist Simpsonville Upstate Church. Uh, getting to know these guys and work with them has been a, a, a real blessing to me. Uh, I've come to know and love Dustin so much, he just has the best hair, man. I mean, out of all the guys, Dustin's got uh, the best hair. We are launching into a new sermon series today. And if you didn't pick one up on your way, and I encourage you to get one on the way out, uh, scripture cards uh, where it outlines each week the scripture uh, that we'll be in. So you can review that prior to the sermon on uh, Sunday morning. We'll be talking about counterfeit gospels, messages that we are really tempted to hear and believe, but if we believe them, they will actually take us further away from Jesus and further away from the truth. There are messages in our culture, sometimes messages even conjured up within our own hearts uh, that may sound like the truth, may sound good, uh, but they're actually pretty destructive lies. And today we start big. Uh, we, we start with one that, that sort of hits us quite squarely. We'll be talking talking about like the American counterfeit gospel, uh, the message that says, hey, you know what? It's my life. I can do what I want. It's my life. It's my stuff. I can do what I want. Um, God, God is there, right? But God is there to help me be me. God is there to help me achieve my goals, to help me meet my dreams. God is sort of my, I don't know, my enabler because so, I got to be me. It is, it is my life. Um, now, some of you that are as old as me might right now have a Bon Jovi song in your head, right? And you know exactly what I'm talking to. It's my life. It's now or never. I ain't going to live forever. I just want to live while I'm alive. I'm trying not to sing it to you. It's my life. My life is like an open highway. Like Frankie said, I did it my way. I just want to live while I'm alive. It's my life. Now you think about the American rock pop music scene and you hear that message over and over and over and over again. It might be uh, All Star by Smash Mouth, right? It might be Firework by Katy Perry, but the message is always there. It's my life. But this is a message from which followers of Jesus must turn away. This morning, we're going to be looking in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. This is commonly known as the story of the rich young ruler, but you might aptly retitle this for our lives like the story of the middle-class American guy, um, because it's really pretty squarely aimed at our culture and our values. So let's, let's buckle up and dive into God's word together. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, that's Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, 
he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Pray with me. Father, that we thank you today that you are a speaking God, a God who is honest with us, a God who loves us enough uh, to shoot straight with us. We pray today that your word would ring out in this room and ring into our hearts that we might be more and more conformed to the image of Jesus, that we would be confronted where we need to be confronted, we would be comforted where we need to be comforted, but most of all, that you would do your work in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In um, her book called Teaching a Stone to Talk, Annie Dillard tells a story of the epic failure of the 1845 Franklin expedition uh, to the Arctic. Uh, They set out to figure out if magnetic fields uh, in the North Pole could assist future exploration and navigation. The mission failed so badly that it became a turning point in the history of exploration. They set out with two ships and 129 crewmen, but not long after that, they got stuck in ice in the Victoria Strait. They were stuck in that ice for over a year. And during that time period, over 20 crewmen died. Well, eventually they decided to abandon their ships and try to make a way to the Canadian mainland and not one of them made it alive. When we reflect on the Franklin Exposition, what's interesting is that the way they prepared, these ships were, you might say, posh. Each one was fitted with a large library. Each one had an organ for music. Each crew person had fine china, the best linens. Each one had his own set of silver flatware engraved with his initials and the family crest. What they did not bring along on this trip were like extra loads of coal, stockpiles of food, extra medicine. They were prepared, but for the wrong thing. The things they possessed, the things they took along, were not the things they actually needed. And this is the problem with the counterfeit gospel that too many Americans, too many of us, that we're tempted to believe. Now, just because we've titled this like the American counterfeit gospel, 
It doesn't mean that we're the first or the only to believe it. Uh, in fact, it's, it's, it's been there throughout the ages and to all peoples of all times, and we see it here in Mark chapter 10. Jesus had been on something of a teaching tour. He had been up to the northern regions of Galilee, over to the town of Capernaum, back down to Judea. And now, as he's making his final approach to Jerusalem, um, a young man, a successful young man, approaches him with a really sincere question. Teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Hear it again. What must I do to inherit eternal life? On the one hand, this young man knows he's missing something. On the other hand, he assumes that he'll get what he's missing the same way he's gotten everything else in his life. And that's by doing. That's by working. There must be something he can do to get the thing he really wants because everything he's always wanted, he's gotten by doing. He's gotten by working. He assumed, we assume, our culture says that life is all about working. If you want it, work for it, right? Think about the narrative that forms the patterns of our lives. It goes like this. Plan ahead. Start early, get an education, stabilize your career, invest in your retirement, love your kids, um, send them to college, and buy insurance. And that's how it's done. That's how you do it. Now, there's a reason that men get my age and they begin to have this sudden urge to go buy a Mustang GT or like a Ford F8 million pickup truck, you know, huge it's because it says this, if I can do that, my plan worked. I made it. For the first time in my life, I can afford it. See, here it is. I can do it. Just don't let that bleed into your theology because life with God does not work like that. Working doesn't work to gain life with God. And I want to point out two reasons why. One of them is in our passage, and one of them is around our passage. First, in our passage, I want you to notice how quickly Jesus puts this young man back on his heels. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So this, this young man, he actually thinks of himself as an upstanding, good guy who's done the things the right way, who's kind of made it in his life, and it's game-recognizing game. He, he feels like he's done things right. There's a guy who's done things right. I'm a professional. I'm going to have a question for another professional because I need advice on this particular area of life. This is a gentlemanly conversation between two professionals. But Jesus just kind of won't have any of it right? If the man thinks he can do something to inherit eternal life, if he thinks he can work his way to God, Jesus is more than happy to test out that thesis. You know the law. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And the young man is like, sure, man. I got that. I've been taught that from my childhood. Look, I'm a good guy. 
I'm a good guy. Was he really? Had he always honored mom and dad? Never defrauded? Never lied? If he were that radically surrendered to the will of God, he would not have flinched when Jesus asked him to do just one more thing. You see, our working doesn't work when it comes to life with God because we can't work that hard. We can't get there. Secondly, I want you to look around the passage. Just before this story, up in verses 13 through 16, people are bringing their children to Jesus, and Jesus loves it. In fact, anytime anybody rebukes a child, he's like, no, 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 no. You let the kids come on, man. Kids are great. Kids are fun. He's enjoying it. And then in verse 30, I mean, then he says to them, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, cannot enter it. Then just below this passage in verse 33, Jesus tells his disciples again what's about to happen to him, that he will be delivered over, that he will be condemned, that he will be flogged, that he will be killed, but then he will rise again. You see, the work that has to be done is the work that the rich young man could never do. Jesus had to do it for him. Jesus has to do it for us. Our culture says that life is all about working. Jesus says, no, it's about receiving. That eternal life, that entrance into the kingdom of God is not something which you can ever earn by working. It's something that we receive. We receive by trusting, by believing in Jesus and the work that he's done on our behalf. Not working, that's the counterfeit. But receiving, that's, that's the real thing. Saying, Jesus, the one thing I need, righteousness in your sight. The one thing I must have to enter your kingdom, righteousness, that's the one thing I don't have. And I cannot get there on my own. I can't be that good. I can't follow the law that completely. I can't do it. I need you to do it for me. I'm just here to receive it. That's what entrance into the kingdom looks like. And yet that's not how this young man responds. In fact, as soon as Jesus makes this one last demand of him, you want to enter the kingdom? Great. Go sell everything you have. Give it away and come follow me. That's the moment he walks. That's the moment he's done Notice Jesus didn't drive him away. No, the text says Jesus loved him. Jesus was offering him a better way. And we just need to pause and sit in the demand that Jesus made on this fella for a moment. Two observations. On the one hand, we should probably not universalize the demand that Jesus placed on him. If we all did exactly what Jesus asked this young man to do, we would probably cause as many problems as we solve. On the other hand, we dare not mitigate, minimize, or take the sting from Jesus' words. For a lot of us in our time, in our place, in our culture, our, our wealth, our working has become such a complete idol to us that it would actually do us a lot of good and might help some other people if we would do a pretty good purge. If we would let go 
of some things. Maybe a, a, a lot, a lot of things. But let's think about this successful young man. Why had he been working? For what had he been working? His working was for gaining. He thought, we think, and our culture says that life is all about gaining. And when Jesus made this one demand on him, you must get rid of it. You must let it go. You must stop the working and stop the gaining. That's when he's gone. Why? Because he had great possessions. Not because he had a little bit, because he had a lot. Yesterday morning, I was sitting on the couch beside my teenage son, talking through this message at the time he was playing this new Star Wars Lego game on, on the Xbox. And when my kid plays a Lego game, he gets like rich about it. In a Lego game, you can collect like little Lego pieces that operate as coins and whatever you beat, bash, or destroy, it gives you coins. Well, I looked up on the screen and he had 48 million Lego coins in this game. And I said, son, what are you gonna do with 48 million Lego coins? He said, well, I'm gonna buy every character in this game. I said, does it cost 48 million coins? He said, no, not even close. I said, well, then what are you going to do? I'm going to upgrade every single character to their maximum ability. I said, is that going to cost 48 million coins? He said, no, not even close. I said, what are you going to do when you're done buying all the characters and you're finished completely upgrading everything? And then what are you going to do? He said, I'm just going to be rich, is what he said. I'm just going to be rich. And I said, wait, if there were a glitch right now, and the Xbox shut off, or the memory blanked, or there was a power surge, and you lost 48 million Lego coins. Oh, Dad. Man, I'd, that'd be bad. I'd, I've worked really hard for this. Look at what I have. And so what if you were just like 5,000, or maybe even 1 million? He said, that wouldn't be a big deal, because I could get that back. You see, it's having much that makes this so hard. Now, I realize that those of us in the room, not all of us here are in the same place financially. I get it. But by and large, we are the kind of people that have a couple of cars, three bedrooms, high-speed internet, $1,000 phones in our pockets. Um, we're doing okay despite 8.5% inflation. And yet, when we hear the word rich... We think about the people who have all the things that we still want, that we're still striving for. So much of our lives and our existence are about working and gaining that when it's that one thing in our lives that gets squeezed, we feel like our lives are falling apart. When the financial crisis of 2008, 2009 hit, actually that day that the stock market crashed, we were on our way to North Myrtle Beach with our families. My parents were along. We had no idea what had happened. We sat on the couch in the, the condo we had rented for the week. And dad, <coughs> excuse me, dad turned on the TV, <coughs> saw the crash. He's trying to retire. And he sat there for a second and he, he jotted something down on paper and he looked at mom and he said, he said, Charlotte will be fine. I, I, we can retire just fine. I'm just going to have to wait till I'm 104. I'm just going to have to wait till I'm 104. That's it. But you know what? They've been okay. They've been okay. A few years ago, the World Health Organization did a global study on happiness that actually ended up being a global study on sadness. 
What they found definitively is that the saddest place on earth is not the Middle East. There's constant threat of war and violence. It's not countries in Central America where there's vast unemployment and corrupt governments. It's actually not like Nigeria or India where there is unspeakable poverty and suffering. The saddest place on planet Earth is Orange County, California, where the median income is 80% higher than the rest of the nation and thousands of times higher than those across the world. Listen, we spend our lives working to be gaining, but it turns out that our gaining just isn't working. There's something we're missing. And too often our gaining becomes an idol that we feed. It's like an addiction to cover some other pain. It's, a, it's something that demands our allegiance and we just can't let it go even when God says we have to. Don't, don't think that this is just some singular time in the New Testament where Jesus talks about our one guy's wealth. No, no, no. This message is replete through the New Testament. Let me give you just a mere little scratch of the surface sampling. Matthew chapter six, Jesus says, you can't surf both God and money. It's one or the other, he says. And that's where he draws the line, God or money. Mark 8, 36, Jesus asks, what does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? Luke chapter 12 is a whole parable about a rich man that Jesus calls a fool for building more barns to store more grain. Luke chapter 16 tells us about a rich man who went to hell. 1 Timothy 6 charges us not to hope in riches. It's just all over the Bible, and therefore it forces the same choice on us. I want you to notice that after this young man walks away, Jesus doesn't actually turn to the disciples and go, yeah, but you guys are okay. That's not at all what he does. No, he turns to the disciples and he shocks them. He turns to the disciples and he doubles down on them, twice saying, it's really, really, really difficult for a wealthy person to go to heaven. He says it twice. And then he drives it home with this nonsensical image of a, of a camel, the largest animal they knew about, of a camel going through the eye of a needle. There's only one way a camel gets through the eye of a needle, and that's if it's reduced to a bloody thread, Right? Think about what Jesus is saying here. He is being as sensational and as shocking as you think he is. In fact, it's so shocking, the disciples proposed to him a question. Jesus, if this is true, who can be saved? Jesus, if what you're saying is true, who's going to make it? Who's going to make it? And this is where Jesus says, yeah, you're right, it's impossible. But not with God. But not with God. The only way a wealthy person can be saved is by receiving the work of God in Christ. Receiving the kingdom by believing in Jesus. This is, of course, the only way anybody can be saved, right? 
but specially targeted at a wealthy person because it's most difficult for a wealthy person because a wealthy person is most prone to be self-reliant. I can do it. It's my life. If it can be had, it can be achieved. And if it can be achieved, I'm your guy. It's really hard for an American to be saved. Culture says life is about gaining. Jesus flips that upside down. He says, no, no, no. Actually, fellas, life's about losing. Losing ourselves to follow him. Losing our stuff on earth to gain treasure in heaven. It's about moving from self-reliance to total surrender. And that's what the rich young man just could not do. Can we? Can we? The story here really is a, a call to divest a call to divest ourselves of a counterfeit gospel, of a false message that says, it's my life, my working, my gaining, mine, and I'll be fine. How might we divest? How might we in practical terms turn away from this message that's so replete within our culture and so seated within our hearts? First, Determine that your possessions will be used to serve and not be served. Make sure your stuff is aimed toward a higher purpose. Find a regular, disciplined, sacrificial, systematic ways to give away money and give away stuff. That's the call here on our lives. Of course, we can talk about our local church, we're talking about the things that, that God is doing through Upstate Church. I'll tell you, I've been working with Upstate Church just for a few months, and it's like week after week after week, my jaw is just sort of on the ground. God, you did that, right? And we view our personal resources as resources for this mission. Sure, but it goes beyond that. It also means like holding my possessions like this, and not like this. It might mean like foregoing the next upgrade so I can let a little bit more go. It, it might even mean like maybe I shouldn't take this next promotion this year because that's extra time and I can invest that extra time in this thing, ministry, here. The point is that we need to keep enough fluidity in our resources and our stuff that we can give freely. That's the point. Secondly, I would encourage you to remember that the best things can't be bought. Now, I know we say it, money can't buy happiness. But as soon as you sit out your mouth, I know what happens in your brain because it happens in mine. Yeah, but I'd sure like to try, right? I'd sure like to try. I find myself caught in this mental cycle sometimes that I think, man, I wish, I really wish we'd made that, that move on that house in 2018. I really do. Or... I'd really like to trade our Dodge Grand Caravan. I'd like to get a Tahoe or Forerunner or anything besides the caravan, right? And then I, I find myself thinking, but at 46 years old to this point in my life, what has really made me happy? Not a house, 
not an automobile, not a promotion. There's nothing I've ever bought that's ever made me happy. Do you know what's truly made me happy? Do you know what's truly been a source of joy for me? When I finally understand that I've been bought, right? That by the blood of Jesus, I've been bought. And I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. My life is not mine. I belong to someone else. And in that, I am free. And when I return back to that basic truth, then the call in this passage to, to lose everything that I might gain it all, to lose it all that I might gain everything, suddenly that becomes a really natural posture, right? Sure, Jesus. Whenever, whatever, however, whatever, I'm game. I'm game because I'm yours. It's not my life. It's your life. We really can either choose the good things of this world or we can choose the God who rules over this world. That's the choice to the young man and that's the choice to us. After the shock of Jesus' words rang in the disciples' ears, we kind of see Peter doing what Peter does in the Gospels. He can be a little brash, a little loudmouthed. We're not sure if he's like being presumptuous, if he's being naive or immature, or he's just being self-confident like, Jesus, look, we've left everything to follow you, right? We, we don't know, but we do know Jesus was quick to respond. Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. He's reminding his disciples Your father in heaven does not have needy children. He just doesn't. He takes care of them. Now, that might not look like the standards of American middle-class living, right? But he does not leave his children wanting. Not now. Get this. Not then. Right? Not then. So Jesus asked this question of that young man. And he asked the same of us. Is it worth it to lose it all now, to gain everything then? Is it worth it? And our prayer for our own hearts, our prayer for our brothers and sisters in Christ ought to be that when that choice comes, we would not walk. We would not walk. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray for the strength, for the grace. We pray for the faith to be able to believe you enough to trust you with our stuff. To know that we don't possess our stuff, that you possess us. And so our stuff is to be aimed for your purposes and for your glory. Remind us today that the key question really isn't about our money. It's about our hearts. Lord, lead us to obedience. Lead us away from self-reliance and lead us into surrender to you. 
These things we pray in Jesus' name, and together we can say, amen. Let's stand together.